Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello, history friends. Zach Twomley here. I was going to carry on as normal and just pretend that that Ukrainian elephant in the room doesn't exist. But yeah, a war in 2022 between Russia and Ukraine. Putin is a complete and utter bellend, I think that was obvious at this point, but jeepers, it's super obvious now. But there are reasons to be positive, too. Yes, diplomacy failed, largely because Putin didn't want it to succeed in the first place, despite what some people may claim about NATO and that kind of thing. If you're in any doubt as to what Putin actually believes, make sure you check out that hour-long speech that he wrote himself, wherein he rambles incoherently about, basically, Ukraine not having a right to exist. If that doesn't spell out exactly where he stands and exactly why this thing is happening, then nothing will. I have been asked by a lot of people to cover this incident in more detail, and I'm going to. I'm going to in the next few days. There will be an episode about this at the end of the week. I held off for a while because I wasn't sure how things were going to turn out, but now that it seems as though it's stabilizing, and I don't want to be too optimistic in that respect, but it does seem like the world's pulling together and doing the right thing, and that's really honestly very reassuring, because I don't know about you, but things seemed really dark for a while there, and it seemed like evil was going to prevail, and thankfully that has not happened. And oh boy, people are now discovering what I learned two years ago when I went there on a random trip to Ukraine. Ukraine is awesome. Ukrainians are brilliant. They are proudly patriotic, and they won't stand for this crap. So today, we're not going to really change up our formula or anything. We're just going to carry on with the episode as normal. And hopefully, as we do, you can take a little bit of a break from the very intense news cycle that's out at the moment. Hello to my Ukrainian listeners out there. Keep up the good fight. We're all proud of you. We're all rooting for you. And yes, Ireland's militarily neutral, so we basically can't do anything. There's not that many people in our country anyway that we would be able to do anything, but we're rooting for you, Ukraine. Slava Ukraini. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to episode 52 of the Thirty Years' War. So in the last episode, we examined the message that Gustavus Adolphus sent to the Holy Roman Empire following his landing in Germany in summer 1630. As we learned, landing in the country was certainly significant and a pivotal moment in the history of the Thirty Years' War, 
But Gustavus remained unable to tap into his full potential. He needed allies, and properly dependable allies at that. How fortunate for the Swedish king then, that the year 1631 began well and ended in his most glorious, triumphant victory. Although his invasion had started relatively slow once 1631 began, Gustavus showed no signs at all of slowing down. In the first half of 1631, though, before the thumping victory at Breitenfeld in September could be seized, the foundations for the success would have to be laid. If he wanted a win, Gustavus would have to depend not just on the guile of his allies, but also on the cardinal sins of his foes. So let's see how he did it, as I take you all back to July 1630. From the moment Gustavus Adolphus landed at Usedom in Pomerania in early July 1630, a clock began ticking, which the Swedish king was unable to ignore. This clock whispered ruin and disaster, shame and humiliation, if Gustavus didn't manage to wrest alliances and promises of support from the German princes, above all the Protestant actors. It was a clock which threatened to replicate the experience of the Danish king, who had been left high and dry by his supposed allies in 1626, whereupon one by one promises were broken and contributions unsent. If Gustavus wished to avoid the same fate as his Danish neighbour, then he would have to gain a solid support base in Germany and glean significant foreign aid from an early stage. Without a German base and foreign support, Gustavus would be in no position to launch the invasion of the empire that he had envisioned and which he believed was necessary to secure his kingdom's security. And yet, while he had landed with sufficient resources to conduct a limited campaign the previous year, Gustavus would be forced to return home if his efforts to canvass for allies proved a failure. As a ruler of a kingdom boasting scarcely more than one and a half million subjects, and half a million of those being in Finland, also afflicted by scant financial resources and a harsh, mostly underdeveloped landscape, it was to be expected that Gustavus could not go it alone, nor did he expect to. His vision had been one of co-opting both alienated Germans and external allies to create a coalition that would deliver the hammer blow to the Holy Roman Emperor, which had yet to truly land. To be fair to Gustavus, since landing in July 1630, he had managed to win some friends, the dispossessed Dukes of Pomerania and the Dukes of Mecklenburg, in addition to radical anti-Hausberg crusaders like the Landgrave William of Hesse-Castle, who offered Gustavus 3,000 soldiers. These gestures provided reasons to be positive, but the small cast of supporters looked eerily similar to that boasted by King Christian of Denmark or even Frederick V of the Palatinate before him. Though he had fortified Stettin, wrested an alliance from the aged Duke of Pomerania, and cleared a portion of imperial soldiers from the region, Gustavus was still outnumbered in Germany and accumulating horrendous debts which he could never dream of paying himself. Since July 1630, in fact, Gustavus had spent some 2.3 million livres in the first few months of campaigning he had managed, yet... This only paid for half of the army's expenses. To put this in perspective, the Swedish crown possessed financial reserves of less than half that amount, not even the recent acquisition of the Prussian ports in the war with Poland, which brought half a million livres a year, could put a dent in such a bill. The lesson was thus clear. To break out of his debt and of his Pomeranian prison, Gustavus earnestly needed to wrest a great victory from the jaws of the Habsburg supremacy. 
The small fry of the empire simply wouldn't cut it. What the King of Sweden needed was the anti-Habsburg power. In other words, the French on his side. But this was easier said than done. I want to talk now about Gustavus's interactions with a very famous French cardinal, but before I do, I've been contacted by several people asking me about my pronunciation. The interesting thing is, though, when it comes to pronouncing Cardinal Richelieu's name, there seems to be several opinions, and several strong opinions at that, ranging from Richelieu to Richelieu to Richelieu, and I'm not really sure which one to go with, so I'm just going to stick with Richelieu, because that's what I'm used to, and if I try to start saying it differently now, then I'll probably mess it up. I basically, I got this pronunciation from How to Pronounce Richelieu. It's like an online YouTube video by a French guy, so seems good enough for me. And if you don't like my pronunciation, don't worry, there are bigger things in the world to worry about. Anyway, it was to Gustavus's great fortune that Cardinal Richelieu had finished his quarrel with the Huguenots, just in time to turn his attention back to the Habsburg menace. King Louis XIII of France had not enjoyed a reign of peace and tranquility at home. This was surely to be expected, given that his father, Henry IV, had only placed the healing plaster over his religiously divided kingdom by himself, converting to Catholicism. With the defeat of the Huguenot stronghold of La Rochelle by 1628, though, and the increased involvement of French forces in a proxy war with the Habsburgs in North Italy, it was plain that the interests of the anti-Habsburg powers were aligning. For many years, we'll recall, France had supported the Dutch in their campaign against the Spanish. Now there arrived an opportunity for France to focus its energies against the other significant branch of the Habsburg family without itself having to directly contend with the forces of the Emperor just yet. As the Swedish king had lobbied for allies throughout 1630, Richelieu had been at the centre of an upheaval of the French royal family's balance of power. In fact, it's worth pausing for a moment to consider the strategic position of France by 1630. On the one hand, France had lost the initiative in North Italy following the capture of Mantua by the pro habsburg Duke of Savoy. Yet on the other, French diplomacy had secured a succession of triumphs. First, there was the coup of the six-year Swedish-Polish peace, negotiated under the Truce of Altmark in September 1629, which freed up Gustavus to act in the empire. This freedom was further reinsured by Gustavus's own efforts to secure Muscovy's support against Poland, in addition to an agreement with the Russian Tsar that netted Sweden a lucrative deal worth more than a million livres to sell Russian grain to Amsterdam. But the French role in brokering the peace is still plain to see. Second, the fortunes of war continued to turn against the Spanish in the Netherlands, following the seizure of the American silver fleet by Dutch privateers, led by Piet Hein in September 1628. The silver haul from these vessels was worth in excess of £800,000 to the Dutch. But more important still was the fact that it prevented any money at all from reaching Spain's soldiers in Flanders from late 1628 to mid-1629. The situation was so dire that Ambrogio Spignola, famed Flemish commander and hero of Spanish Habsburg arms, was recalled to Madrid to explain the resulting emboldening of the Dutch rebels, who effectively reconquered Spaniola's gains from 20 years before. 
When he was before his betters in Madrid, Spaniola urged that Spain opt for peace at any price in the Netherlands, regardless even of what the Dutch wished to do with Catholics in their midst. This was previously considered the bare minimum of the demands that Spain would make. But peace didn't come in 1628, and the following year, their army swollen to more than 120,000 men, thanks to Piet Hein's silver, the fortress of Serdegenbosch was captured. The seizure of this fortress in September 1629 seriously hampered Spain's ability to project its propaganda into the Dutch Netherlands, as Serdegenbosch had been its propaganda headquarters for much of the war up to this point. Spaniola, no doubt crushed with disappointment and dejected following the silence which his urgings were greeted with in Madrid, died before the end of 1630 while besieging the fortress of Casal in North Italy. Perhaps no better illustration of how completely overstretched Spain's forces were by this point. A third factor in favour of France's position was the aforementioned submission of La Rochelle, which removed a dangerous fifth column from attacking the centre of French royal power. With the surrender of La Rochelle was followed peace with England shortly thereafter through the Treaty of Sousa, the 24th of April 1629, and the conclusion of a war which had been ill-advised and terribly wasteful for King Charles in particular. England also made peace with Spain that November, and with that treaty, it seemed as though Charles had given up on winning back the Palatinate for his dispossessed brother-in-law Frederick V, which also meant he had given up fighting for his sister Elizabeth. Until the Prince of Wales was born in 1630, indeed, the future Charles II, Elizabeth of Bohemia was the sole heir to the Stuart dynasty, but this period of English intervention netted no true benefits for a reign which was soon to be infamous for other reasons. In 1629, though, the failure of Charles's favourite to achieve success outside the ramparts of the Huguenot fortress contributed to the general unpopularity of his whole regime. The Duke of Buckingham, the author of the scheme, was assassinated shortly afterwards, and England retreated across the Channel, effectively absolving itself from any further intervention in the affairs of the Thirty Years' War. Richelieu would certainly have preferred to have retained England as an ally, but if given the choice, he was content to watch English prestige sink beneath the waves. The grace of Allay, which solidified the peace with the Huguenots, was unmistakably the work of two men, Cardinal Richelieu and his sovereign. Indeed, King Louis even publicly acknowledged as much, noting humbly that one must render the cardinal the honour he deserves. All of the happy successes within and outside the realm have come by his counsels and his courageous judgments. Not to be outdone, Richelieu then wrote with equal force, All your majesty's subjects vie in their desire to render the obedience that is due him, not only as their king, but as the most just, pious and courageous of all those whom God has given to France up to the present. Another thing counting in France's favour, the fourth factor that I found, was the war in North Italy over the Mantuan succession, which forced the Habsburgs to prioritise their strained resources, which benefited France. Emperor Ferdinand elected to save the Spanish interest in Mantua, rather than in the Spanish Netherlands, as had originally been planned, and 20,000 of Wallenstein's soldiers was redirected to North Italy, where they would remain until staggering home many months later. While Mantua would be seized, and the war technically was a success for the pro-Hasburg Duke of Savoy, even this success brought its own asterisk, 
as Habsburg forces were far from Gustavus's landing point, just at the point when the imperial commander, Count Tilly, desperately needed them. Furthermore, the Disadvantages Treaty, which the French negotiators were forced to sign in July 1630, following the news that the Habsburgs had captured Mantua, was not recognised by King Louis, and he took advantage of the distractions within the empire caused by Gustavus's landing to repudiate this treaty before the end of 1630. Fifth and finally, at the Diet of Regensburg, which was hosted over the summer and into the autumn of 1630, France had become intertwined with imperial politics, as Richelieu sent some of his best agents to scope out the situation in Germany and leverage the French interest. This French interest, sponsored by Richelieu from the beginning, was to present France as the defender of German liberties, as the dependable foreign face of a third way in the empire, between foreign invaders which rankled princely sensibilities and the emperor's unbending demands which many resented. As a Catholic power, furthermore, Richelieu felt that France was in a strong position to pose as the champion of German liberties to Catholic German potentates, such as the Duke of Bavaria. During the Regensburg meeting, in fact, one such French agent was reported to have told the Archbishop of Trier, one of the seven electors in the empire, don't forget, of King Louis XIII's express wish to deliver Italy and Germany from the oppression to which they have been reduced by the manifest violence and ambitions of the House of Austria. French dignitaries would have by no means been out of place at Regensburg, as representatives from England, Tuscany, Venice and Spain were also in attendance, and even those Protestant electors in Saxony and Brandenburg who resented the recent passage of the Edict of Restitution also sent delegates. These joined the 2,000 other dignitaries in attendance. The major outcome of the Regensburg meeting, as we know, was not to confirm Ferdinand III as the Emperor's successor, as Ferdinand II so desperately hoped. Nor could Emperor Ferdinand wrest a commitment from the dignitaries to wage war against the Dutch in support of Spain. All that seemed, on their minds, was the removal of Wallenstein's hulking host of 129,000 foot and more than 20,000 horse from Germany. It should go without saying that the dismantling of this force was to the benefit of French security, as well as Dutch and Swedish security. With the dismissal of Wallenstein, in fact, command was handed to Count Tilly, and the empire as a whole was more vulnerable to invasion than it had been since 1624. That four great sieges of La Rochelle, September 1627 to October 1628, of Stralsund, May to August 1628, Sir de Genbosch, April to September 1629, and Mantua, November 1629 to July 1630, that these should all have been tackled in such close proximity and occasionally within the same campaigning season must stand out as one of the great accidents of the Thirty Years' War. In the same way, though, so too can the convergence of French fortunes with those of Sweden be discerned. On the 11th of November 1630, from his sickbed, King Louis XIII of France made a decision which was to define his reign, his nation, and the Thirty Years' War. Rather than appease that pro habsburg Catholic camp in the country, led by his mother and the so-called devotes, Louis determined to ignore that camp, to his mother's utter surprise, and perhaps to the surprise of Richelieu as well. Encouraging his mother and her favourites to believe their cause was won, this only helped Louis to remove his enemies more easily once they showed themselves. 
This Day of the Dupes, as it has become known, effectively placed the control of French foreign policy within Cardinal Richelieu's hands. King Louis's family had long been a difficulty to king and cardinal alike. In July 1630, following a succession of bitter betrayals and disappointments, Louis wrote to his brother and heir Gaston to the effect that, I object to the little respect you show the Queen, our mother. I object to the little care you give to keeping the word you have so often and so solemnly given. I object to the disorderliness and debaucheries of your life. The Bourbon royal family certainly had its troubles then, but after November 1630, these dramas were no longer able to disrupt the proper business of running the state. At long last, after having struggled through issues domestic and political since 1624, the cardinal was in control. By 1630, indeed, Richelieu had secured his position in French politics by creating several creatures of his own, men who owed their position to the cardinal and who effectively served as his eyes and ears until his death in 1642. The brilliance of Louis' surprise move was matched only by Richelieu's consistent diplomatic finesse, which remained a source of awe for historians and contemporaries alike. Richelieu, wrote John L. Stevens in 1884, knew how to comprehend and possessed the skill, the persistence and balanced will to enforce so much of the plan and policy of Henry as would tend to the unity of France and render her powerful in the councils of Europe and an unrelenting enemy of the House of Austria. Certainly, Richelieu was unrelenting in his opposition towards the Habsburgs. The arrangements with Spain's arch-enemy the Netherlands and the Emperor's arch-enemy in Sweden propelled Richelieu to the forefront of European politics. From the moment he had defeated his enemies and secured his position at home, indeed, Richelieu determined to pursue a course of firm friendship and soon military alliance with the Habsburgs' greatest foes, a policy which would extend beyond the Peace of Westphalia, as Stevens continues. One of the most gifted and capacious minds of the century for statesmanship and diplomacy, time was to show how the Cardinal Minister and Gustavus Adolphus were to accord in dealing with the issues and deadly struggles on the Rhine, and with the elements of intrigue, ambition and combat centred around Vienna, with powerful ramifications from one end of Europe to the other. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. 
so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The first significant step towards the cementing of this policy was the conclusion of the Treaty of Barvalda on the 23rd of January, 1631. This was the key treaty that made everything that followed afterwards possible. Per this arrangement, France committed to pay Sweden 300,000 livres right away, and 1 million livres a year for five years. In return, Gustavus swore to leave the Catholic League forces alone, unless they attacked Gustavus first. This awkward stipulation, which was written into Article 9 of the treaty, wouldn't last the year of 1631, but it reflected the intention of Richelieu to forge ahead with an agreement with Maximilian of Bavaria, an agreement which would be pursued further with the Franco-Bavarian Treaty of Fontainebleau in May 1631. The professed aim of the Franco-Swedish Treaty was to finance a war for the safeguarding of the Baltic and Oceanic Seas, the liberty of commerce and the relief of the oppressed states of the Holy Roman Empire. To that end, the treaty declared, the King of Sweden will take up his share of the great burden of the war by bringing an army of 30,000 infantry and 6,000 cavalry at his own expense to Germany and maintaining it there. News of the treaty caused a sensation, but the rationale for it was plain. It was nothing less than the continuation of the Cold War with the Habsburgs. Throughout the text, references to a common enemy and the Great War were made, indicating that France would one day dispose of the illusion of peace and make total war on its Habsburg foe. The previous January, after all, when leading another expedition through snowy passes against the rebellious Duke of Savoy, King Louis of France had proclaimed that Since the Spaniards want war, we will ram it down their throats but this ramming would have to wait until France was fully prepared, until Richelieu felt confident to make the Cold War with the Habsburgs hot. He was content to strike against her in theatres like Mantua and through allies like the Dutch and Swedes. This is verified by the historian David Parrott, who wrote, Encouraged by these developments, Richelieu's carefully balanced policy was to try to ensure that France's allies could play a major role in the struggle against the Habsburgs, while not being so successful that they might be in a position to break away altogether in order to make a separate peace treaty. To help the Allies maintain military pressure on the Habsburgs, France was prepared to pay increasingly heavier subsidies to lend diplomatic support in disputes with third parties, and in the last resort, to provide covert military support. Every inducement was provided to keep France's allies in the war, except an open and full-scale military intervention on their behalf. For the next few years, between 1631 to 1634, Richelieu ensured that France verged very close to outright military confrontation with the Habsburgs without actually declaring that war. Richelieu correctly believed that Spain could not afford to open another front when the war with the Dutch was already ruinous enough. Indeed, within Madrid it was well known and accepted that France was the source of all our troubles, yet it was recognised at the same time that for the moment the Habsburgs couldn't afford to usher in a new era of the conflict with what would likely be an all-consuming showdown with France. 
for the moment at least, it suited all parties involved to keep the conflict covert. We're going to continue this episode in a minute, guys, but before we do, I want to remind you that if you are a fan of historical fiction, if you want to get deeper into the Thirty Years' War story itself through a brand new lens, then make sure you check out Matchlock and the Embassy. Matchlock and the Embassy is the first installment of a historical fiction series set during the Thirty Years' War. And I can let you know exclusively now what the name of the second installment in that series will be, Matchlock and the Rebel. Matchlock and the Rebel will be released at some point in March. I'm working really hard on it and ironing out the last few cracks, so keep an eye out for that coming soon. I am, of course, super excited that this series is doing so well, and if you would like to have a look for yourself and see what it's all about before the second book is out, make sure you click on the link in the description below, and you'll be able to read that book on your favourite devices, or, of course, in physical paperback format. As regards to the audiobook, all these things are a work in progress, and if you've heard about my Audiblegate expose Twitter thread, then you'll know that audiobooks don't exactly pay particularly well, so long as Audible has this ridiculous stranglehold. That, of course, does not mean I won't be doing audiobooks, I very much intend to, and I will be striking hard in the audiobook theatre with versions of the Thirty Years' War books and Warfare in the Age of Matchlock 2, and, of course, turning my recent Matter of Honour book that has also just come out, turning that into an audiobook as well. So, yeah, all these creative ventures are really exciting and going really well, It's a little bit of a tough balancing act to do the PhD at the same time and, of course, also keep you guys fed and watered with the podcast. But I'm happy how things are going and I'm looking forward to seeing what you think of all this stuff. Remember, as I said, Matter of Honor is out now in ebook and paperback format, the second edition. So if you haven't read that book before and you'd like to know a little bit more about how the First World War started in Britain, then check that book out. Links in the description below. Thanks, guys. Now let's get back to the story. The Treaty of Barvalda, signed in January 1631 between Sweden and France, represented a determined step towards realising this policy of resistance to the Habsburgs. But its significance should not be underestimated for the Swedish king either. Without it, Gustavus's resources, followed by his followers, would have melted away. Another less obvious intention of the treaty was to demonstrate a Franco-Swedish desire to restore German liberties and to pose as the joint saviours not merely of the Protestant, but also the Catholic potentates. Gustavus spent some time demonstrating his affinity and respect for the imperial free cities, those city-states with long histories of privileges and traditions, which the Swedish king proclaimed his determination to uphold. At Stralsund, for instance, Gustavus had relinquished so many rights and privileges to that port city, thereby making it virtually independent, though still clearly within the sphere of Sweden's empire and firmly in alliance with the Swedish king. In February 1631, several Protestant princes in the empire, including the electors of Brandenburg and Saxony, met at Leipzig. Throughout the month, the most important of Germany's Protestant potentates discussed the two major issues, the Edict of Restitution and the Swedish landing. Unsurprisingly, they intended to use one against the other. With the pressure caused by the Swedish arrival and the announced support of France, it was possible that with a bit of pressure, 
the Holy Roman Emperor might be convinced to relax the hated edict and reverse its tenets. The communique from the Leipzig meeting, released on the 24th of March 1631, reads more like a list of requests than a coherent conclusion, but it makes plain the pressure which the Protestant powers felt so suffocated by. We attest before God and the world that we are entirely innocent of all the evil if this gruesome oppression is not remedied quickly, and we seek and wish with peace-loving hearts and souls nothing more than to isolate and resolve all defects through amicable compromise, establish true trust as firm peace and mutual concordats, observe that the basic and imperial laws do not oppress German freedom, leave the electors and estates with their authority, honours, dignity, privileges, immunities, and laws and justice, and do not coerce or oppress anyone who lives according to law and justice. End the gruesome murder, oppression and violence, restore a general lasting secure peace, and finally put a stop to the lament, misery, desolation and destruction, and the terrible bloodshed. But was it really possible to end this terrible bloodshed or gruesome disorder? Indeed, we may interpret the communiques a double-edged sword for Gustavus, since while they protested against the emperor's policies, the Protestant princes, which the Swedish king so badly needed by his side, showed no signs of crossing the Rubicon to his side. Still, the message which they sent to the emperor deserves to be highlighted, as it represents something of a final warning to the emperor, before the electors of Saxony and Brandenburg did in fact attach their banners to those of Gustavus, however reluctantly. The communique from Leipzig continued, Their elector graces of Saxony and Brandenburg have themselves decided from their peaceful hearts that if the amicable compromise is not made, the authority and dignity of the Holy Roman Empire will be endangered still further and, God mercifully forbid, will be driven into the ground to the eternal shame and rebuke of the electors and estates. The foreign potentates will also interfere in the affair and bring misery, ruin and destruction to each estate, regardless of religion." Was there any weight to this threat from the Protestant potentates? In all likelihood, not really. The real force of their threat came from the presence of Gustavus, rather than from their own resources. Indeed, the Protestants didn't even think to mobilise, and nor could they afford to. The Elector of Brandenburg had run up debts of nearly £4 million by 1618 alone, while the Elector of Saxony's debts amounted to more than five million Rhine florins and foreign debts consisting of over one million pounds by the end of the 1620s. Evidently, their greatest asset wasn't their monetary strength, but the Swedish king. And yet, they remained neutral in the conflict, unwilling to declare against the emperor, and unsure of Gustavus's prospects. By early April 1631, though, the two electors did in fact reach an agreement on the creation of a defensive alliance, complete with an independent force of 40,000 men, directed at nobody in particular, yet the Saxon and Brandenburg electors were not to be its financiers. That would be the task of the minor German princes who constituted the imperial circles and whose finances were in much better shape. This commitment to protect their territory was known as the Leipzig Manifesto and it added a third party to the morass of German politics which Gustavus would have to navigate. So, Geoffrey Parker writes, Supported by none of the major Protestant states, Gustavus marched impatiently up and down the Baltic coast, conquering Mecklenburg and Pomerania, so that Swedish control was now complete from Denmark right round to Finland. The Baltic was now a Swedish lake. 
Gustavus now had achieved the first of the objectives of his invasion. Now he had to secure a settlement that would guarantee Sweden's gains for the future, and for this he required the active support of the two Protestant electors. And Parker was right here. A victory of some kind was needed. A great symbolic triumph would show the two non-committal electors that Gustavus, essentially, was not the Danish king from 1626. And if opportunism didn't appeal, then the threat of force could always be used. In the spring of 1631 then, furnished with the monies that the recent treaty with France gave him, Gustavus made for the river Oder, where he encountered the large town of Frankfurt. This town was smaller and less symbolically important than its namesake further to the west, which straddled the river Main, Frankfurt on the Main. But it remained an important hub of commerce and a strategic bastion along the river Oder, nonetheless. On the 13th of April 1631, Gustavus engaged in a brief siege and then a brutal sacking of the town. It would be several months before the greater prize of Frankfurt on the Main was his, but the latter city had been suggested as a place where Catholics and Protestants might meet and discuss a common policy, following the fallout of the Diet of Regensburg, where the absence of the two Protestant electors had been noted. The garrison at Frankfurt on the Oder was badly paid and demoralised, a reflection, as it transpired, of the wider problem in Germany which Count Tilly's men faced and which would move Tilly the following month to barge into Magdeburg. Gustavus's forces, buoyed by Scottish mercenaries who would soon become almost as famous as the Swedish king himself, killed 1,700 of the 6,400 imperial garrison in revenge for earlier setbacks and some Pomeranian skirmishes. The capture of this bastion of Germany sent a clear message and it demonstrated that Gustavus was capable of breaking out of his Pomeranian base. For the moment though, the River Oder marked the extent of Gustavus's adventures in Germany. After all, he lacked sufficient maps which detailed further reaches of the German countryside. The months of campaigning in Pomerania had given the Imperials a bloody nose, but the Swedish king was yet unaware of the importance of Wallenstein's dismissal, and nor did he fully grasp the reason why the once overwhelming Habsburg army did not meet him in a pitched battle. In short, Gustavus was fortunate in his timing, but he was even more fortunate in his allies. Unlike his Danish peers' experience, these allies were to prove dependable and reliable. More than that, they were critical planks of the Swedish king's success. It took some time before Gustavus learned that Count Tilly had been selected to replace Wallenstein, and that Tilly was gathering up as many of Wallenstein's soldiers as he could afford, and that Tilly had made his way towards Saxony, where the undefeated 73-year-old veteran Hasburg commander hoped to gain some respite and resources for his depleted soldiery. Rather than inherit the mantle of Wallenstein, though, Count Tilly was fated to provide the Swedish king with a far uglier but also more valuable victory than that recently won through the Treaty of Barvald. This victory would be rested not on the battlefield or in the diplomatic hall, but in the medium of propaganda and from the ashes of the city of Magdeburg. We're going to cover that event in the next episode, History Friends, but until then, thank you so much for listening. Oh no, I'm sorry. Thanks for listening to this latest episode of the 30 Years War. You're the best. I'll see you all soon.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 